0: Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is Richard Sander, the Jesse Ducminier Professor of Law at UCLA, an expert on the phenomenon of mismatch in higher education. And uh, you may recall that I discussed mismatch with Richard some time ago in our first conversation on Manifold. In our second conversation, we discussed the oral arguments in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and UNC case. That was before the Supreme Court. And yesterday, the Supreme Court issued a decision in those cases, which we are now going to discuss. So Richard, thank you very much for joining me again.
1: Good to see you, Steve.
0: Before we get into the egghead stuff and the minutiae of the law and the constitution and how this will impact the future of American higher education and beyond, I just want to just take a step back and ask about, as they say these days, the feels. So how do you feel about this decision and and how did you feel when you first heard about it?
1: Relief. You know, I I, I gave Edward Bloom a lot of advice when he was thinking about bringing additional lawsuits. Uh, so I have been aware that, that, this was developing since 2013, 10 years ago. Uh, I helped prepare some of the materials used in the initial complaint in 2014. I was in the courtroom in 2018 when during parts of the trial. So I've lived with this a long time and it was, uh it was great to see the Supreme Court nerve itself to do something that it hadn't quite been able to do in the Fisher decisions and the, and the Gritter decision. So I was relieved that they put they the bullet and, and took the
0: step. And would you say how much of that is just the addition of the new, I guess, Trump appointed three justices. Is that right? Is, is the momentum shift here mainly just the, the flipping of previously more left of center justices to right of center justices?
1: not entirely. So, in both Fisher and Grutter, there was some expectation that racial preferences would be banned. Uh, but in both of those cases, Republican-appointed judges sort of went through a conversion and ended up siding with the more liberal justices in both cases. In fact, that even happened with Walkie. Justice Powell was also a, a Republican appointee. So, This has been an issue where moderate justices, I think, have really struggled. And one sign that that was true even in this decision is that uh, the Supreme Court did not actually overrule those earlier precedents. They basically distinguished them and and sort of said, this has been a failed experiment. Uh, so, So to sort of answer the other part of your question, what is... Playing in here, besides politics, is that many of the hopes and expectations that modern justices had for affirmative action have just been disappointed. Um, there's just a much broader intellectual consensus now. I think that affirmative action failed. Well, specifically that racial preferences fail.
0: So this case was filed, I believe, in 2014, and yeah. as part of it, obviously. Uh, you know, through discovery, I guess the the plaintiffs were granted access to a lot of data. And would you say it was that data that really convinced the court to update its priors on whether the experiment was a success?
1: Well, I think that helped. The court's decision was less data driven than 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 I had hoped, or that my friend Peter Citiacato, the plaintiffs' expert, had hoped. There wasn't a lot of discussion about specific statistical finding. In fact, very little discussion of that in the case. So, more important would be the fact that Harvard and UNC both sort of said, we need more time to make racial preferences work, but we can't give you an endpoint. The court really emphasized in its decision that in 2003, Justice O'Connor had predicted the preferences would no longer be necessary by 2028. And she also laid down various other restrictions and expressed concern about the possibility that preferences could turn into discrimination against other groups. And what we saw in these cases was were all those concerns kind of coming to life. There was no sign in in the arguments presented by either university that they even had a timetable for getting rid of preferences. And as you know, there was lots of evidence that uh, Asian Americans were uh, being disfavored by both Harvard and UNC, even more than whites. And there was very little effort by the universities to articulate specific goals that they thought were being achieved by preferences. It just came back to very kind of broad rhetoric about diversity. And, uh, you know, that I think made it easy for the court to say, this is just going nowhere. We've been doing this for 50 years, and you're making the same arguments about, you know, give us more time that you were making in the 1970s.
0: Right. So it was kind of a, a updating of priors over a long period of time and realizing that uh, they were not close to solving the problem.
1: Right. So... In 2003, Justice O'Connor was the swing vote for the liberal decision. And something that really influenced her, I think, was that the military filed a brief. and They said, we've been using affirmative action. and We've made real progress. We've tangibly changed the shape of the officer corps in the U.S. military. So that's a real achievement, and that's a reason to keep preferences." And my guess is that O'Connor thought, well, maybe the universities will get to that same place, too. But, you know, the years since have just, have just showed all sorts of reasons to think that, that uh, racial preferences aren't working. Some of the ones that I've articulated, some of the ones that came out of the cases, the anti-Asian-American convention was certainly very important. But a significant thing, Steve, is that the way this decision was written by not overruling Bruder uh, and Fisher, the court actually said that preferences by military academies could still be permissible. In fact, you know, the decision, I think, can be read right to say that any institution that can come up with a compelling argument or, or carve-out could still use racial preferences. They just can't use the rationales that the university is using for
0: Got it. So since you're starting to discuss the details of the ruling, would you mind just giving us a kind of overview of what the majority decision actually concluded?
1: Sure. The key point is that the court found racial preferences as practiced by Harvard and UNC to violate the 14th Amendment. They said that in general, the 14th Amendment prohibits state actors or recipients of state assistance, like Harvard from using race racial classifications. They gave lots of examples of racial classifications that have been struck down so we've carved out in Bakke a narrow exception for universities to do this in particular ways. And we reaffirmed that in Bruder and Fisher. But there was a lot of evidence in this case and a lot of evidence from broader practices of racial preferences in contemporary America that those exceptions have proved unworkable can't actually get universities to articulate compelling reasons to have more diverse classes that justify using race in a very ad hoc way. They found that Harvard and UNC were were basically just using racial goals and saying, we want our classes to look like the same racial composition as our applicant pool, and we're going to use whatever size preferences we need to get to that. Um, that's the sort of thing that lawyer justices and Fisher and walking and, and said you can't do. So, essentially the court was saying racial preferences in American higher education no longer deserve a special carve-out. And we're not going
0: to permit it. And would you say basing it in the 14th Amendment is a particularly powerful way to in effect, eliminate affirmative action?
1: Yeah. Um, I had argued, uh, and I probably mentioned when we spoke in November, that uh, a more modest way of reaching the same goal would be to find that racial preferences violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In other words, Congress in 1964 banned a variety of types of discrimination. And one part of a law they passed called Title VI applied to public education and private education to the extent that it was funded by the government. If the court had gone with that Title VI approach, that would have been more modest since that it would have said, if Congress wants to change the law, they can change the law. Uh, it's just a piece of legislation and Congress could pass a new piece of legislation. It would still be pretty dramatic because it's unlikely that that by the Congress is going to, uh, you know, it's got to pass an informative form of action. But by basing the decision in the 14th amendment, the court said Congress cannot change this. Even if Congress wanted to use racial preferences, they not pass that back to so law. So that part of the decision is pretty
0: dramatic. So in, in the majority decision, I believe they specifically carved out, and I'll read the language to you. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I'll just read it for the listeners. This was item F in the majority opinion. At the same time, nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life, so long as that discussion is concretely tied to a quality of character or unique ability that the particular applicant can contribute to the university. Many universities have for too long wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. This nation's constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. So, so my read of that is that one can no longer simply grant the preference based on ancestry or race, but one could still make room for a very specific part of the application, perhaps the personal essay which shows that a particular individual overcame uh, barriers to their earlier education or or life success. You want to comment on that?
1: Yes, that's clearly the most important language in the opinion. And it's language that's certainly going to be litigated in future cases. It's important because if you didn't have some statement like that, then it could mean that universities could run into trouble with any sort of characteristic of an applicant they took into account that would have a, a disproportionate effect across racial lines. So even if they wanted to take into account, uh, you know, whether your parents went to college or whether your income was low or high, those factors could become constitutionally suspect if they, if they had a close correlation with race. What the court is saying in this language, I think, is that as long as you can articulate a goal that's independent of racial diversity and show that you are applying this standard that helps you get to that goal in a way that is even handed across racial lines, then you can use that characteristic, even if in the case of an essay, it involves a reference to race. So to be concrete. But let's say that a university says, we want people, we want students who are going to have leadership potential. Uh, we want them to demonstrate leadership potential in their application. So if I write an essay and say, uh, well, I, I became passionate about uh, uh, discrimination in my school. I'm black and I organized a civil rights group and we had demonstrations and we got the school to change policy acts. Uh, that's all fine. As long as it would be equally applied, equally acceptable for a white student or an Asian American student to say, I became passionate about homelessness, and so I organized my classmates to set up a soup kitchen, and so on and so forth. As long as you apply those criteria in a way that wasn't driven by race, reference to race is okay. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, absolutely. When I tweeted about this, it's funny that we we reference Twitter now as, you know, <laughs> the place where intellectual conversations happen. But I, I tweeted about this yesterday and one of the people who follows me immediately tweeted back saying that clause that I just read is actually a loophole. And what is going to happen is that Harvard and UCLA are going to coach, say black applicants or or guidance counselors. Uh, writing for black applicants to merely rehearse some standard uh, trope about how because they're black they've overcome a lot, et cetera, et cetera, and thereby through the back door smuggling smuggle in a boost in the admissions ratings that the Harvard admissions office or UCLA admissions office would give to that candidate. So that's the mo- probably the oh. most cynical read of that of that clause that I've heard. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's cynical. I think it's accurate. I mean, there's lots of that already happening in the UC system in California, which, as you know, has been under a a racial preference ban for 25 years. UCLA even hired a a huge cadre of African-American applicant readers to sort of turn on their racial radar and try to find clues as to the racial identity of applicants in their essays. So it's definitely going to happen, and that's why I say it's certain to be litigated, because the next challenge, I think, will be a lawsuit against a university which is producing results that don't reflect sort of the academic composition of the applicant pool. And they'll put a university to the test and say, can you prove that you're not using this as a a go-around, but you're actually applying this this leadership standard or whatever, to all races equally.
0: So let me, I want to talk more about, you know, what you think the the litigation landscape will look like uh, going forward. But before I do that, I just want to read a specific statement, which I believe was in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion regarding this point. And so let me just read that and then we can discuss how we think the the, the weaseling, the backdoor weaseling by the universities will work and the, the, the legal challenges to it. So this is Roberts. He writes, But despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. Parentheses, a dissenting opinion is generally not the best source of legal advice on how to comply with the majority opinion. End parenthesis. Yeah. What cannot be done directly cannot be done indirectly. The Constitution deals with substance, not shadows. And the prohibition against racial discrimination is leveled at the thing, not the name. That strikes me as a very clear statement that, uh, you know, he doesn't think that this sort of backdoor method should be allowed to to happen. Maybe you can react to that.
1: Well, it's a clear statement and it's great language. And Roberts wrote uh, a really well-crafted opinion. Um, But it's very hard to implement that language. Um, You know, if if a school is favoring students who bring up racial injustice in their essays... It's very challenging to show that that was done for any of these reasons. Some university presidents have have given litigators a head start because they've issued statements like, "Irrespective of what Supreme Court says, we're going to maintain our diversity levels." So that's kind of prima facie evidence that they're going to cheat. But in general, it's going to be very, very challenging to establish this. And uh, you know, part of the challenge will be that. You file lawsuits before you're even really allowed to discover. You've got to withstand a motion to dismiss. You've got to come up with some preliminary evidence that shows that the university is uh, is playing games. That's going to be very hard. Very hard to find a plaintiff. You know, to find a an 18 year old who's willing to sort of you know, go down in infamy as someone challenging a new generation of racial preferences. So I I admire Robert's language, but uh, uh, it's it's going to be quite difficult to actually enforce that.
0: Right. I I believe there was actually a a message sent uh, to members of the Harvard community and signed by the the president, the the current president and the incoming president, um, which more or less said we're going to use this. I mean, they literally cite that language in the decision saying we're going to use that. Um. Yep. To to preserve, uh, quote diversity, and so yeah. go ahead.
1: Well, I've been thinking about this a lot even before the decision, and and uh, I'm working with some folks to try to develop model legislation. What I would really like to see happen is is some state legislators, to uh, enact rules that require universities to first be transparent about their admissions, in other words, provide data on their admissions process. Second, to clearly articulate what goals they're trying to foster. And third, do yeah. sufficient tracking to show that their admissions criteria actually help achieve those goals. If you can get even a few states to do that, um, that would that would give us sort of a gold plated standard of here's what race neutrality looks like. And that would then make it easier to show and get through the courthouse door to say this other university clearly isn't doing something like that. They clearly could do something like that. So let us mitigate this.
0: So I guess if we look at California as a specific case, there was uh, many years ago, Prop 209 was passed, which prohibits well discrimination on the basis of race, but affirmative action, I think, in particular. And then that proposition was defended in 2020. Proposition 16, which was meant to repeal, 209 was defeated uh, at the ballot box. But my understanding of the history is that initially, race-blind admissions was implemented broadly through the UC system, but then gradually over time, they've developed, quote, workarounds. And do you think something like that could happen nationally in response to this SCOTUS ruling?
1: Absolutely. The, so there, there are two different things going on. One is that it was harder for UC to be race neutral than it would be for colleges nationally to do it now. Because the elite UCs, like UCLA and Berkeley and UC San Diego, were and are competing against uh, the whole national pathway of schools. So if UCLA went race-blind, and they, and they made an offer to strong blacks in the applicant pool, those blacks would be getting more generous offers from from other elite schools. They'd be getting offers from Harvard, Yale, and Stanford that would probably include a lot of scholarship aid. So you'd have a race-blind regime competing with a race-conscious regime. So it would be very, very hard for those schools to, to be competitive. It would be very costly for them in terms of maintaining university because the good students who academically qualify for those schools are getting lured away by more human students. Does that make sense You follow that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what happens.
1: yeah. So today, the potential is there for schools to to have a much easier time of it. They can be race neutral, and if they expand their outreach uh, mechanisms and they they dig further into the pool of, of qualified applicants they could probably still do a pretty good job. Black and Hispanic levels might fall some, but they wouldn't fall dramatically. So, so that's an argument for why there could be a good scenario where you had broad compliance and, uh, and, and you know most schools made a reasonable good faith effort. But the bad story is that you now have this UC example that's occurred over the really the last 10 to 15 years in various campuses where cheating has become rampant. And no one has brought a lawsuit against UC to take that down. So colleges across the country, I think, are more or less aware that UC has been doing this. And they're thinking, well, if if UCLA and Berkeley got away with it, then why can't we? So you have both those forces at work. There's the fact that the playing field is now been nationally level, but on the other hand, you have this successful example of cheating, not only by UC but also University of Michigan, has has flagrantly violated its state law against using racial profiling. So, so both dynamics are going to be at work.
0: Does the existence now of this SCOTUS ruling make it easier to bring an action against the UC system?
1: Yes. One reason why uh, no action was brought against UC is because uh, by the early 2000s, the California Supreme Court had become very liberal. Uh, it, it was pretty politically balanced in the 1990s. You had generally Democratic legislature and Republican governors. Um, but over the last 20 years, it's become one of the most liberal courts in the country. So lawyers who, who considered bringing this against UC felt that even if they could prove their case in a lower court, the California Supreme Court would find some way to, uh, to sort of reinterpret Prop 209. So the fact that you can now bring a federal action makes it a lot easier to, to uh, bring an enforcement action.
0: Yes, that seems like an important change. Just to clarify the, the phenomenology, like what's actually happening My understanding was that uh, today at Berkeley, still the freshman class is only something like three or four percent black. So there's they haven't fully uh, worked around the law, have they? I mean, I mean, still it's still a much smaller percentage than they would like. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, But. um, Well, yeah. I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One is that uh, Berkeley is is shooting much less than UCLA is, and much less than many of the UC campuses are. Um, so Berkeley has has still maintained a significant degree of race trail. However, the three point four percent is is a is a bigger number than you might think because uh, the black population of California has been declining. Uh, blacks only made up about. 6.4 percent of all high school graduates in recent years and 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 again Berkeley is competing with you know schools that have been using strong racial preferences so particularly Stanford is going to be a big competitor of Berkeley and, and they've got an they because they've been able to use racial preferences so the 3.4 percent still reflects, significant racial preferences. The other thing to keep in mind, though, you know, that there's there have been many news articles sort of decrying uh, how tough race neutrality is going to be and, and how Berkeley and UCLA had these terrible declines in minority enrollments. Uh, that story is really exaggerated because it ignores the fact that both schools have expanded their transfer programs and both schools have dramatically improved their graduation rates. So Berk- Berkeley and UCLA, if you if you put them together, have many, many more black and Hispanic graduates than they did before Prop two and So by you know adding I... in the transfer factor, adding in the graduation factor, you get a radically different picture than if you just look at, at freshman
0: enrollment. You, you know, I'm glad you clarified that because I, as somebody who actually follows this business, even at a, like a wonky statistical level, I, I was not actually aware of that fact.
1: Yeah, yeah, I spent a lot of time with uh, actually three different New York Times reporters and, you know, went through lots of statistical discussions with them and, and they ended up reporting that quite well. But even the Wall Street Journal yesterday, well, I guess this morning, had an article that uh, completely misrepresented what happened. At UC after Prop It's very very common, and it's a line that that UC has pushed vigorously. They've they've uh, throughout this Prop 209 era have been determined to present it as a as a catastrophe, even though it's it's abundantly clear in a dozen different ways that Blacks and Hispanics have uh, have done extremely well in to a nine era.
0: You know, I just uh, focusing narrowly for a moment on your own work on mismatch theory, it, it would seem to me that if you had full access to all the post-Prop 209 data, I guess before and after, you could really demonstrate very solidly that your theory is correct, right? Because you have scenarios where lots of academically underqualified kids were admitted and didn't do well uh, in the actual undergraduate program or had to switch to easier majors and then in the post two oh nine era, when compliance was good with the law, then you had well matched kids who did, you know, as well as the white or Asian kids uh, on their campuses. I mean, it just seems like if you had full access to the data, your your theory about what is actually happening would, would be vindicated very strongly.
1: Yeah, and and we we probably talked about some of this story in in one of your earlier podcasts, but but rough, you know, quickly, uh, I did get. Recent data in 2008 from, uh, from the UC Office of the President, and I shared that widely with academics, and several articles appeared in, uh, in the 2010s demonstrating this. The, the American Economic Review had a flagship article showing uh, how science mismatch had, had, uh, had dropped significantly at UC after Prop 2 and and The number of Black and Hispanic science graduates uh, went up dramatically. So yes, we, we were able to, to demonstrate the mismatch effect strongly. But then you see completely clamped down on uh, data access. They refused to let us do further updates. And the data they gave up, uh, understated the mismatch effect because it was not as granular as one would really like. And as you know, the less granular data is, the harder it is to show effects that actually exist. Then you see went even further and they they gave, they gave the dream data, the really good data, to uh, a young graduate student economist named Zachary Bleemer, who's now an assistant professor at Harvard. And Bleemer then came out with a, uh, a couple of very misleading articles that seemed to show mismatch was not as significant as we could argue. But he, he wouldn't release the data. He said he was bound by a contract not to share his data with anyone. Uh, so you know, you've got this very aggressive propaganda effort by UC to uh, to you know try to kill the kill the real story.
0: Yeah, make, uh, thanks for reminding me of that. I, I remember you went through this with me before. I, I had forgotten about bleemer. <laughs> it makes me want to cry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but okay, so let me let me turn to something else. So the actual defendants in these two cases, Harvard and UNC, what will now happen? Uh, like, uh, will the federal judges that were involved in an earlier stage oversee the remedy? How, how will, what what next will happen at those two institutions?
1: Yes. Both cases will go into a remedy phase and, uh, SFFA's legal team has been, has been working on what their strategy should be. I'm pretty sure that they will be stuck with the two judges they had before. Um, which is unfortunate because both of those judges were, uh, I think, strongly biased in favor of the universities. So they'll uh, they'll try to, you know, make their best out of that. Uh, what's pretty clear, though, I think, and will be hard for the judges to resist, is at least having a, a significant level of transparency, so that SFFA will be able to have the kind of data access that they had during the litigation to see what happens um, in the initial years afterwards. And there will probably be some sort of discussion about uh, exactly how these essays can be used.
0: How, uh, this is kind of a in-the-weeds question, but I'm just personally curious. When the Supreme Court you know, comes back with a very strong decision like this, do those justices ever kind of look in and see what the appellate judge is actually doing, <laughs> the the one that lost, you know, the one that's overseeing the case? I mean, uh, could that person be slapped down if, in some way, if if she is is not actually enforcing the ruling properly?
1: Well, the lower courts have effectively been chastised by this decision, and they know that if they if they don't try to implement it in good faith, SFFA will be able to go back to the Supreme Court.
0: I see. So they have a they have a sort of quick path to go back to the Supreme Court, or would it take another nine years? <laughs> well,
1: yeah, it, it'll take long enough, but uh, it you know, not nine years. Uh, and 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 there'll be a fair amount of confidence with the six three decision that the Supreme Court would stick to its balance. You know, in in Fisher, you had a somewhat similar situation. Fisher, one, remanded the case back to the lower courts to look into whether they had actually shown uh, benefits from diversity that could be tied to particular emissions taxes and so on. Um, And the Fifth Circuit sort of, uh, you know, did a very shallow job. It was taken back up by the Supreme Court. They granted cert, but then... Uh, Kennedy kind of backed off from its earlier decision in Fisher 2 and, and gave the university a pass. So in that case, you had essentially the final lower court that uh, that took a gamble. The Supreme Court would change its mind, and it did.
0: So in this case, uh, I mean, I, I think the judge in Boston was named Burroughs. You know, if I had to guess and model her psychology from afar... I would guess that she, just like the Harvard administrators, thinks this is some terrible perversion of American jurisprudence by a conservative, terrible Supreme Court. And therefore, she probably has no moral compunction against doing everything she can to aid Harvard in the aftermath of this ruling. Am I too cynical? I don't know. I I thought
1: Judge Bro's opinion was, was pretty awful and ignored mountains of empirical evidence that that SFFA experts very professionally put together. But, you know, uh, she did make decisions during the discovery process that were were very reasonable decisions. She gave the plaintiffs a lot of access. You know, when you go through a trial like that, there are many, many decision points for the judge. And Burroughs did not try to the discovery process down I think she was I think she was fair during that process so you know there are ideologies and there are also traditional norms and you can't really predict how how that's going to play on an individual judge's mind. I, 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 in other words I wouldn't say the bros is uh, is going to be determined to undermine the decision uh, GMAFL, you know. I believe in preferences and I'm going to write a decision that eloquently justifies them. But if the court overrules me, I'll try to let that in good faith. I'll have to see. Yeah.
0: That, that's reassuring. <laughs> Emphasis here being on judicial norms, holding sway over personal <laughs> ideologies. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And they're real.
1: I mean, you know, judges, uh, just have difficult jobs and, and, I know a lot of judges, and, and uh, I know some judges who have made outrageous decisions, but, but most of them, most of them uh, really do try to be very professional, and they try
0: to be fair. So let me let me describe what I see looking closely at the current situation for college admissions. Literally every school now, except sorry, every elite private school except MIT that I know of has now made the SATs optional. And even Caltech, my alma mater, which used to be very meritocratic, has actually adopted the has actually gone to the opposite limit. So they are telling applicants to not report or try to report anything about their scores in their application. They're very strongly warning students not even to, like, smuggle them in. Like, in your essay, you could say, like, oh, I was very happy that I got 1600 (laughs) You know, you could say that and (laughs) smuggle it in. But they even tell you not to do things like that. So I possibly because traditionally the faculty at Caltech really do want students with top scores, and so maybe the administration is trying to keep that information out of the process. But be that as it may, only MIT, which went through an internal study, uh, they had dropped the requirement for the scores during COVID and then realized they had consequently admitted a lot of students that were struggling at MIT. And so they, they, they concluded after active study, they definitely needed the scores. Sadly, Caltech is at the opposite limit, but basically so are all the other elite schools. And so it seems like if I wanted to continue uh, a de facto affirmative action policy, I would encourage all the white and Asian students, the gunners, to submit their scores. So I can continue admitting. I don't require it, but I sort of, you know, you know, I, I sort of spread the word that, hey, if you're white and Asian, you better have top scores or you're still not getting into Harvard. But I don't collect scores on the people that I want to be the beneficiaries of preference. And then it just becomes much, much harder for SFFA, SF F.A., sorry, to sort of demonstrate that uh, effectively a system of preferences is still going on, uh, but they they now lack the data. The school deliberately fails to collect the data that one would use to demonstrate that's going on. Maybe you could react to that.
1: Well, I think that the next pieces that, that develop in this area are going to be driven to look at outcomes rather than just the emissions process. Because you're right, universities will make their admission processes more okay. But they'll still assign grades. <laughs> There's been a lot of grade inflation, but I don't, think, I don't think universities are quite prepared to get rid of grades yet. So if you could show that, uh, regardless of the qualifications, you're having a huge performance gap along racial lines in your student body, then that's going to create a presumption that you're discriminating. That'll then be an effective way of shifting the burden of proof onto the university. Say, okay, so tell us how you are arriving at this class that has these wildly uh, different academic outcomes.
0: I think that, I agree with your point there, but uh, let me just mention a couple of, aspects related uh issues already in in the ivies as you know the average grade is close to an a so so discrepancies in performance among groups might be very difficult to tease out and also if the gunners are the ones taking the hard classes and the preference admits are taking very easy classes you know that that effect would have to be accounted for so you might end up back with the sort of dueling statisticians uh, situation where you know the, the school's doing everything it can to make it hard uh, for the plaintiffs statistician so I I am still worried <laughs> it seems like the policies that these schools are implementing are almost deliberately in advance of this decision you know trying to pave the way for for their response
1: yeah and I don't want to imply that I'm not worried uh, there is a there's a real possibility maybe even a probability that, that, that things would get worse in this community. that you'll, you know that schools will just move away from performance measures move away from qualifications if they find they're losing too many strong students to competing schools there's still you know there's still strong incentives to preserve the illness of their student bodies and and they can't have different race-based rules for who submits scores and who doesn't. So that's all to say it's it's going to be a complex game of chess.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I think the most interesting thing will be which whether all the elite universities, maybe with the exception of schools like MIT, sadly not Caltech, you know, act as a block and basically adopt all the same kinds of strategies. Or whether somebody, maybe Chicago would be like this, Will break out and you know comply in spirit with this decision, uh, not not just uh, with the letter of the law.
1: Yep, yep. Well, so let me go back to my earlier point: is that if you get some state legislatures to pass laws that really mandated transparency and then mandated that the universities articulate their goals and show quantitatively how their admissions criteria. Fulfill those goals better than other alternatives. You would really have a model. You'd have would have some good state universities modeling. Here's how to do this fairly. Um, and that would that would create a very helpful competitive pressure out of the schools. A helpful political pressure and a, a helpful litigation pressure. So some kind of path like that, I think, is. It's maybe the most hopeful one for getting real reform in higher
0: education. Yeah, I definitely feel that working on model legislation uh, for states that want to implement this, I think it's very valuable. Let me ask you just one more question, and I'll let you go. I appreciate your time. Can you just talk a little bit about effects of this ruling beyond higher education? So on. Or 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 beyond admissions, so maybe faculty hiring, or maybe even hiring at uh, private companies, things like that. Do you see any downstream consequences?
1: Absolutely. I spoke to a reporter a few hours ago about the uh, report of California's reparation committee. You may have heard that uh, yesterday was not just the Supreme Court opinion, but it was also the the delivery of the final report of California reparations group. Uh, appointed by Governor Newsom that is recommending something like $880 billion in reparations for blacks in California. And the chair of that commission gave a press conference and said, uh, you know, I'm disappointed in the Supreme Court's decision, but fortunately nothing that they said is going to apply to us because we're basing our reparations on life experiences.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good.
1: Uh, yeah, so, I think that's not going to quite work. Any sort of reparations effort is, is, uh, is going to be challenged based on this court decision. And from what I've read of the Reparations Commission, uh, they did not do a good job of, of showing that uh, individual life experiences in the 21st century were uh, directly and immutably shaped by the experience of their 19th century ancestors so uh, I, I think it's going to it's going to have a chilling effect upon all sorts of price-based of equity efforts that have proliferated in the last several years.
0: great well again I appreciate your time I know it's late in France and I hope that you can enjoy the rest of your vacation although I'm sure there are plenty of other reporters that would like to talk to you so uh, thanks. Well,
1: talking to you is, is uniquely valuable, Steve. I always learn a lot from our
0: conversations. Wow. Likewise, I, I appreciate that. That's very that's kind of you. My guest today has been Rick Sander. Uh, perhaps we'll take this up again. This topic up again in the future. Thanks again, Rick. Take care. Yep. Cheers. Cheers.